The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tech Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. Today, we have in studio, from Dogs for Our Brave, Shannon, Bridget, and April. And this is your host, Jason Galvin. Well, welcome, guys, and thank you for coming to the St. Charles County Veterans Museum today to talk about Dogs for Our Brave. Tell us a little bit about uh, Dogs for Our Brave, uh, Shannon. Well, we are a uh, 501c3 as well. And uh, we take rescue dogs, and we train them to be service dogs for veterans. Okay. And if uh, Shannon, if uh, Bridget and April can tell us a little bit about how they got involved with uh, Dogs for Our Brave, we'd love to hear that. I'm April, and I got involved with Dogs for Our Brave by chance. Uh, found the executive director position online, and it's been uh, magic ever since. I spoke with the board of directors, and just found that I connected with the mission. And uh, my background most recently was in um, administrator of a memory care. And what I found is how we work with our dogs in the training process is ironically similar to how do you communicate with those living with dementia. And I don't mean disrespect in any way, but there's a lot of similarities in um, style and approach and um, helping our veterans is the number one priority. What about you, Bridget? Um, I have a little bit different of a story, um, but first of all, thank you so much for having us today as well. Uh, but my story is that I drove past Dogs for Our Brave every day. I was working at a pizza pub right down the street, and I just decided to walk in one day, and I was like, hey, can I volunteer with you? Um, I had just left another animal-related job, and I really wanted more animal contact, so I just wanted some volunteering hours, and one thing led to another, and I became a trainer, and then I graduated and kind of got promoted into community engagement coordinator. Awesome. And Shannon, how did you get involved with Dogs for Our Brave? Uh, I was a dog trainer at a kennel uh, before this. And um, Dogs for Our Brave is located in Dogtown, which is the very Irish section of St. Louis. And I was going to a friend's house for St. Patrick's Day. And I had to uh, park my car pretty far away, and I skated by a building that uh, was called Dogs for Our Brave, and I immediately applied because <laughs> it looked like they were uh, using dogs to help veterans, and that's exactly what they do. So that's why I joined. 
Awesome. We love those stories. And, you know, thank you guys again for coming tonight. And we appreciate having you guys here at the museum. You know, we know that organizations that work with veterans, we're all aware kind of that we're, we're losing about 22 veterans a day taking their own life. We're not sure how the pub, you know, that the public has much awareness of that statistic. And uh, there are many, many good organizations helping uh, lowering that number. How is this organization doing that, uh, doing their part in this in this vein? Um, well, I would say that uh, we are trying our best to pair each veteran that applies to us with a dog that is going to fit their needs best. So, depending on what their situation is, we we meet a dog. We have a dog that is going to match their personality. They get to fly in and meet with the dogs, all of our available dogs beforehand, and then they kind of get to meet with everybody and the dogs will kind of pick the veteran at the same time as the veterans picking the dog. So it's a good personality match and um, it's just always going to be a companion that's there even in the dark times to help them hopefully um, not make a bad decision with their lives. Love that. Can I take you off? Yes, absolutely. I would just like to add to that. Um, it is a little bit more of our philosophy as well to really, get invested in the veterans and that's why we do what we do. We cover the financial cost of the dog for the life of the dog so that the veteran is never put in a situation that is darker because of us. Um, and they do get a dog once their service dog retires or passes away. Like we have a very invested relationship with our veterans. And even though we are small, we are mighty because we believe that we really would like to take as many resources as we can to truly impact the life of that veteran rather than, you know, mass producing dogs. We want to make sure that we're doing the right thing at the right time for that right veteran. Many veterans come home and that's kind of when the battle begins. You know, that's, that's when the new battle begins at least. And this organization, you know, we're recognizing that uh, you guys are helping veterans. Can you talk about how the organization actually came to be? Yeah. Andy and Marilyn Gladstein are our founders, and they live in Southern California um, near, obviously, many military bases and a lot of military people out and about, and they met a Navy SEAL, struck up a conversation, and um, became really good friends with the Navy SEAL and his wife, and they started dining together, and then the topic of service dogs had come up, and the cost to train a service dog at that time, um, 2012 13 was about $25,000. And, uh, and that, you know, on an organization, that's a lot of money. Um, but for Andy, he decided to turn that into a positive and he made a donation to an organization of that amount and had a service dog trained. And he did that for, um, him and Marilyn's 36th wedding anniversary. Um, but what they found out is when they were at the luncheon, when the veteran was receiving that dog, the topic of the financial responsibility thereafter came up, and this veteran was married with three children and on a hundred percent disability through the VA. And the reality is, we all, you know, those of us that have dogs, they need monthly preventatives, their food, their care, their um, emergency, um, if that so happens, and they're they're. Um, quite a burden sometimes, but, you know, we keep it positive. And really that was the conception of dogs for our brave. Well, there's a lot of misconceptions out in the public. You know, for example, if a service member fulfills their commitment to their country without losing their life, that they're going to be okay. And what, what have you guys found that in that situation for veterans um, that come to you guys and how do the dogs kind of help mitigate that misconception and help them along their way? Uh, well, we have um, a number of veterans who have lost either limbs or they've had traumatic brain injuries. So the dogs do things as simple as picking something up. Um, a couple of veterans also have like back and hip issues. So just bending down. Uh, one time a veteran was in town, they dropped something on the ground and I saw them take like a deep breath just to like brace themselves before picking it up. And the dog that we had that was out and about with them picked up something, picked up the dropped item for them and handed it back to them. And the veteran just like lit up like, oh my goodness, that was just so much easier than the bending down. So things like that. Um, we have Riley, who um, is with one of our veterans, Brian. Um, he says that as soon as he gets up and put his uh, gets his socks, she's grabbing his shoes for him. So he doesn't even have to do those things. 
And um, then we have other veterans who have had uh, trauma in other ways where it doesn't appear as physical. Um, And a lot of them just have anxiety about going out and being in public, especially after being in quarantine for like two years. So the dog is there as a reason for them to go out and not be alone. That's one of the first things we hear is that um, I've been out a lot more. I've seen my family a lot more. I've done things a lot more because I don't have to go out and be alone. I've always got someone with me. And I think, too, one of the important things is they always have somebody with them, as we were talking earlier about the dark times. Um, When I'm vetting through veterans and asking a lot of questions about their lifestyle, they have a lot of time at home alone. And as we know, that can be a veteran's worst time. Um, When they have a dog, a service dog that is there to support them and be their companion, they now also have a sense of purpose beyond themselves. So if somebody is feeling that they've come back and they just can't find their purpose um, and then they're in their dark place and they're alone, that can be a little bit traumatic and there's a lot of fear from the outside looking in. And when they wake up every day and there's a companion right there waiting who needs to go to the bathroom, who needs to eat, that veteran has that responsibility to move forward with their day and help take care of the dog. And so it's really a two-way street. They're helping each other. So a lot of veterans that uh, we've run into are taking are taking different types of drugs, sometimes many drugs. Service dogs are considered alternate treatments and an alternative to drugs. Do you guys receive feedback as to how successful the program works in relation to, to people that have been on drugs or that are trying to get off drugs or currently on drugs? That's a really good question. Yeah, we've had a lot of discussion in the realm of, of – drugs that are being prescribed for somebody who's clearly said, I need help. Um, Each veteran comes with their own story. So without digging into anybody's personal business, um, I think that we've seen the gamut. And um, the dog is going to be there right by their side. And so sometimes just looking in the dog's eyes before they decide to take another pill um, can be the better option Um, There was a really positive story that came out, though. We have a veteran who's prescribed pretty heavy drugs for sleeping. He doesn't take them all the time. But when he knows that he might have a bad night, he'll take that um, prescription medication. And um, one of our service dogs, I'm sorry, his service dog um, alerted him that there was smoke in his apartment. Ironically, it was his smoke detector that malfunctioned, caught on fire in his bathroom and started to fill the bedroom with smoke. And he had taken that prescription medication to go to sleep and a service dog woke him up. And so they were both able to safely get out of the apartment. I would like to add too that um, we have heard from other veterans, yes, that their service dog has had so many emotional, physical, um, and mental benefits to, that alleviate some of their symptoms that they, that they experience. And I just do want to acknowledge that on an industry standard, service dogs should not be a drug replacement. They are there definitely to alleviate all of these things. These um, they, They're trained to retrieve items to alleviate physical pain. You know, they're there to interrupt your nightmares so you're not struggling with mental pain during the night things like that, but they definitely should not be a replacement for any kind of prescription. They are just one piece of this really big puzzle of overall health and wellness. That's great feedback. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you did mention that, you know, can we understand that, you know, all or most of the dogs are rescue dogs and uh, can you describe kind of the process you go through to recruit a dog? Uh, Yeah. So we have a checklist of things that we do. We, bring a, an actual, an old suitcase, uh, like briefcase filled with different items that uh, we use to interact with the, the puppies. We go to different rescues. Sometimes we hear from places that they've got a puppy that might work with us, or sometimes like with one of our most recent dogs, we just went to the APA to see which dogs they had available. There were about three or four dogs that could have worked out for us, and one just kind of made his way to the front of the front of the pack and he's now tiger he's with us uh right now he's been training for a few months now and he's actually doing great so um but there's a checklist of things like we bring an umbrella and we'll open it just to see if they get scared but it's a pretty tried and true way to make sure that they're not too anxious in public and that they're pretty confident with certain things that we want them to be confident with I mean, that so confidence is one of those things you're looking at their drive and their ambition mm-hmm. and then 
anxiety is another one. You know, yep. if they are confident, they're not likely to experience much anxiety in public. And that's why we use the umbrella because we want to actually startle them. And if you startle them, that's okay. How do they recover? If they are terrified and they are just they just become a statue, that's not a good sign. If they do get startled and then they come back and sniff and investigate that umbrella, that's a really good sign because they that's okay. You can get startled. You just have to be able to recover from it. If they don't even notice the umbrella, that's even better. <laughs> so it sounds like there's a qualification process for each of the dogs yep. to be trained. And uh, so what kind of happens when uh, they don't qualify, when the dogs don't qualify? Is there a non-qualification process? Um, yes. So we've had just a couple of dogs um, not finish the program for various reasons. Um, one dog had like elbow dysplasia and we didn't want to put a working life on her. So she, we adopted her out to a couple so that she can have a nice home life and just chill on the couch most of the time. Um, but other dogs we've had go through the program and they just weren't as motivated as we thought they were going to be. And we adopt them out through five acres. Um, so there is, uh, you can put in your application through five acres. You can look for the dogs for our brave dogs. If there are any available at the time, you can put your application in and they send them to us. The dog still stays with us at our facility, but they kind of vet everything for us so that we get the applications through them. So how many trainers do you guys have on staff? And, and then how many uh, dogs can a trainer handle? Um, so I'm the head trainer. We also have a director of training and then there are four other trainers, um, underneath me as well. Um, but we all work together to work with every dog every day. So we can handle one or two at a time, depending on what exercise we're doing. Um, but we don't work with just one specific dog each day. We all work with all the dogs so that they're getting a mix of skills, a mix of handlers and, uh, they get a really good variety of work. That also prevents them from getting overly attached to one person yes. during their training so that when we do transfer them to a veteran, it makes that process so much easier because then they really start to recognize I'm working for this one person now. And there's a whole process that um, goes with that to really bond them to their veteran. And as the non-trainer of the group, what I really love and appreciate is the creativity that the trainers get to have when they work with each dog individually, because each dog will excel in different areas and different skill set. And um, sometimes it takes a group to figure out, how are we going to get this one dog to do this one activity? Or maybe we don't have to get that dog to partake in that activity, but they get to try different things and see what works and what doesn't. And each dog is different, just like each veteran's needs are going to be different. And so they really get to communicate a lot with each other. And I think it creates a culture of dog trainers that are just bonded in a different way. Is there any specific breed of dog that works best in this scenario or is are all dogs trainable that can work out? Yeah, all dogs are definitely trainable. Whether they can be service dogs is another question, but we do, they're all mixes for the most part. Um, we have had a couple of pure, uh, purebreds donated to us, um, but most of the time they are mixes. A lot of them have a little bit of pit bull in them, but we look for lab and um, retriever mixes a lot of the time. Um, there are some herding dogs that can be pretty driven as well, but the, uh, the labs and retrievers are pretty dependable for us. We do tend to find a lot more of the lab mixes because their characteristics in that particular breed fit the mold of being a service dog so well. And so when you do rescue dogs, you are often finding these mutts. And so we do get often a lot of dogs that have sprinkles of different breeds in them. And that's why the assessment is so important because we're really looking at what characteristics from what different breeds that you have in you um, are going to work because sometimes you might get, you know, a dog with cattle dog in them or Australian Shepherd and they might be just way too focused and way too driven and too energetic to be a service dog. What's the average age of a dog that you guys train? I'd say we've done as young as we've taken them as young as eight-week puppies, um, but the average age is probably four to six months, and then on the upper end, we'll take them about till a year and a half if they're a really driven and motivated dog, but I'd say six months to a year is probably the good range for them. The oldest we have taken on was two years old. Yes. 
I'm sure there's a limited time they can perform in their role. Can you guys kind of discuss a little bit more about that and what that looks like? Yeah, so we've only had, unfortunately, only one dog has passed away. And um, so I, we've been lucky that that's the case right now. Um, but uh, the first dog that passed away, Josie, um, we immediately flew the veteran in to find a replacement dog and he met with Frito and uh, eventually they, they were paired up. Um, but we like it to be, if we can, like an eight to 10 year uh, working life, um, about till 10 to 12. Uh, if they need to retire earlier for any reason, we're happy to do that and get them a replacement dog. Uh, if anything medical comes up, we'll cover the cost of that and we retire the dog to become a pet dog with a veteran. Another thing, too, that is important for us, you know, as you talk about an aging dog, it's really important that we have that open line of communication with our veterans because that's where it's going to start. They're going to start giving us clues that their dog may be nearing the option of retirement or the dog may not be performing the way that it did when it's younger. And you know what? That's okay. But it's really up to us then to handle that very graciously with that veteran because they're so bonded and they don't know what to, what we're going to do or what to expect when the word retirement may come up. Do I get to keep my dog? Are you going to take it away? Are you going to give it to somebody else? And again, I think that's where we're unique because we can decide what we want to do case by case. And the goal is not to just take your dog away that you've had for so long we still want to cover the financial need of that dog. And um, while we don't place the service dog in a home where there's already a pet dog for obvious reasons, one's a couch potato and the other one has to get up and work. And uh, you know what? They may not understand that. When you have probably a retired service dog who may still kind of do some of the stuff that the new service dog would do, That's that can be a good compliment. But I think that would be handled on a case-by-case scenario. But for us, it's making sure that the veteran's comfortable enough with all of us to start communicating things that they're seeing in the dog and allowing us to help in that decision-making process and, and just giving them the understanding that we're not going to take your love away. We're just going to find you somebody who can perform a little bit better to the needs that you have now. To add to that, too, some of the the breed differences in the dogs that we rescue are a factor. Um, some of the bigger dogs are more likely to develop some hip dysplasia, which can end their service a little bit earlier. And then the needs of the veteran play a factor as well. We do have a lot of severely injured veterans that utilize a brace command with our dog. And so they do put a little bit of weight on the strongest part of the dog's body, for a stable point if they need it. Um, some of our veterans that are in a wheelchair utilize this skill probably on a daily basis just to get in and out of bed. Um, and so that can cause a little bit more wear and tear on that particular dog than another dog that might not be using that skill. And so their service might end a little bit earlier as well. And it's all just open form of communication with the veteran that's required because we just need to know those things. We, and we're very transparent. If they're going to utilize a skill like that, they just need to know that that is going to have a little bit more wear and tear on their dog. So do you guys have a specific process for like like if a, a breeder or somebody wants to offer up the puppies, do you guys take the puppies in general? Do you have a program where you get the puppies from different breeders or is it just wherever you can get rescue dogs? Speak a little bit to that. And can you raise them directly from a pup all the way And just keep going. You can, but we really enjoy our mission of saving two lives at once. And so we do our very best to rescue dogs from shelter environments. And especially right now, because it is so overcrowded in shelters. Um, It was even on NPR the other day out in Pennsylvania. Um, But this is a, a nationwide issue that there are so many dogs in shelters that need such good homes. And we want to do our part to make sure that we can find them and so that's our way of being able to do that. I love that, saving two lives at once. That's a great moniker there. I love that. It's interesting that you asked that too. A conversation that we had had amongst the team was, wouldn't it be easier if we just found a breeder and had lab puppies 
And it was just a hypothetical situation in a conversation we were having at an all-team meeting. And I think all of us kind of giggled. And again, me being the non-trainer, um, it was interesting to hear everybody's feedback. It could be easier, but it'd be like deja vu every day. You'd be doing such a repeat because, you know, let's say it's a lab puppy. Um, they're typically easy, easier to train. They want to work. They have desire where... We get thrown curveballs all the time, and then it's like, oh, you have to figure out how to handle that situation. So it just brings a little bit more to the training team and to their daily routine to have um, a little variation in what they're doing. Yeah, and this way we have a variation of the skills that the dogs can provide too. So we kind of figure out in our all-team meetings which dogs are looking good to uh, pull wheelchairs and which dogs might be better to uh, better suited for uh, someone with PTS. So we do have um, different dogs that fit different skill sets and can find a different role for the veterans. Let's switch gears just a little bit here, and, and we want to talk about a little bit about how the dogs know how to do certain things or how they sense things. So can you speak to how the dogs are trained or how, they're, uh, how they work in being able to sense nightmares and things of that uh, nature? A lot of it is just repetition and just practicing and patience. So we have a mattress um, in our facility where we go and we take fake naps. And we will lay down with a dog, get them settled, get them laying on our chest to comfort us. And then we will, like, you know, fidget or change our breathing. And the dog will uh, react and kind of lick our face or just react to us a little bit. We'll click and give them a treat, and we just keep repeating that. So we they get used to things like that, and dogs are also very emotionally intelligent. Um, I believe there's research that says that dogs will match their heartbeat to the person's heartbeat. Um, so they are pretty intuitive if your emotions change. Um, I will pretend to... Um, get upset, just start changing my breathing, get it really fast, and the dog will immediately come and kind of, like, jump on me and check if everything's okay. So they do have some intuitive uh, nature to them that just works for what we do, and then a lot of it is just training repetition. We tend to capitalize on that intuitivity, though, because, you know, as someone, as if you are someone that does struggle with anxiety, you know, you do have these anxious feelings, these anxiety symptoms, and your dog can can pick up on that. And as research says, like Shannon's saying, if your dog can mimic your heartbeat, I'm sure that makes them feel anxious, and they're going to want reassurance from you. And so that is what we capitalize on. If they're picking up that something's wrong with you and it's making them uncomfortable and it's making them anxious, they're going to come check on you. And that's when we train them to do the behavior that Shannon is talking about. So foundationally... It really all starts as a game, and then you drive them to want to work, and you just you kind of mold that behavior. And so, you know, it can be fun at first. It can be super engaging for the dog because they've never done it. They don't know what you're talking about. But if you're making a lot of noise and you're doing funny movements and your head's in your hands, they're going to come investigate that. And then that's when you start to tone it down to really mimic more anxiety after they've picked up on the game. And so once they start licking your face and they start, you know, pawing at you maybe, then you start treating them. You just start capturing that kind of behavior and repetition and consistency comes in with that. You just do it over and over until you get them across a room and you sit down, you take a deep breath, maybe kind of fake cry, and then they realize, oh, my person's in trouble, my person needs me, and they run over and they interrupt your crying behavior. I've seen kind of on social media where, the dog is touching like different uh, buttons and making different sounds and things like that. Is there any mechanism where the dog could be trained to somehow call for help, like 911 or something like that, if something's needed? And, and how does that work if it can happen? Um, we would definitely be able to train a dog to like go hit a specific button during a specific situation. It would be a matter of, you know, building up the steps and a little bit at a time. Um, another thing that we teach the dogs that can be helpful as well is just a cell phone retrieval. So we have a few cell phones that we drop all the time around the building and the dog will pick it up and bring it to us. They can also find my phone. 
Um, so uh, they'll go grab it off of a table in the next room and bring it to you. So even if you need to call for help and you can't move, they can bring you your phone. Um, but we do we train them to ring bells to go outside, little things like that, so they can associate a certain uh, action with a certain meaning. There's also a command called get help that yep. the dogs are trained for. And it's really beneficial if you're a veteran that's in a house with other people because if you need something, um, you fall out of your wheelchair or you feel, I don't know, a really big anxiety attack coming on and you maybe need specific medication, either you send that dog to go get that medication or you can actually tell that dog to go get help. And the purpose purpose of that is for them to go find another human being and to bring them back. And so this could even be as advanced as going out in public, you're a veteran, you've fallen out of your wheelchair, you're in an aisle, nobody has come to find you yet. Um, And so you can send your dog to go find a human. And some of the dogs that are more advanced will actually pick up their own leash and take it to the human, whichever human they find that's closest by. And hopefully that person will register, this is not normal, and kind of you know, follow that dog back until they find that veteran that is in need. It sounds like we need some uh, information out there in the public so that if that happens to people, they know what to do. I, some education for yeah, the public. You I know? was going to say, if a service dog ever does come up to you without a person, you should follow it because the person might need help. So Definitely. Absolutely. So most of the time when we hear about PTS or PTSD, some people call it still, um, we think of trauma from combat, but soldiers face other traumas too. What other traumas... They, have you guys seen with veterans, and how do the dogs help those help them through those things? Um, well, some of the other trauma can be uh, there's a wide range of things. Um, some of the things that we have seen are um, military sexual trauma. Um, that's definitely one of them, um, and that with the, the dogs who help with that, it's a lot of providing comfort, um, not going out alone, things like that. Um, but we uh, we we handle all sorts of different kinds of trauma that the veterans might deal with. Do the dogs know the difference between the different traumas and how, or is it just kind of more of a help in in the traditional sense of doing daily activities? Yeah, they just know they know how you're feeling and they know that they want to help. So, I mean, really, we just teach them how to do that. So. Okay. And a, a lot of the conversation, too, when a veteran's been approved for the program, and um, and we don't do a list. It's a very small pool of approved veterans. Um, we're having a lot of communication with them prior to the pairing process so that we understand, um, based on the different diagnoses that they have, what are the symptoms that they're showing. So if we think about... Um, symptoms that may come with military sexual trauma, anxiety, depression, um, agoraphobia. And if we're talking specifically about their anxiety, what are, what are they presenting as when they're in an anxious moment? Is it something with their hands? Is it their heart rate? Is they are, do they start to sweat? Do they want to smoke? Do they need a drink? And then as um, we near that pairing process, we keep that in mind. So while, yes, they do pick each other, they really, really do. In the back of our mind, as we're watching um, that veteran be introduced over a week's period of time to different dogs that we have, we're thinking about, oh, remember the, remember the symptoms that are showing or the signs. And then once they've been paired with their dog, we still have that dog for anywhere from two to six months before the placement happens. And so then we can hone in and start to train that dog to pay attention to those specific signs that the veteran's showing. So I guess one of the questions we have is, does the veteran need to be very candid with what the uh, their pairing needs are and what is that process? Yeah, they need to be candid about their life. Um, when I speak with a veteran during the process of application, um, not only are there a lot of required documents that we need to review, um, I ask a lot of questions. And um, is it comfortable at first? Maybe not. But the, the more trust and, and the relationship that I build with the veterans and Paul, our director of training, as well as part of that process, 
we need the utmost honesty and transparency. And I think it all starts with understanding that the relationship between a veteran and a service dog is a 50-50 relationship. It's also our responsibility to watch out for the welfare of the dog. So I can't place a dog with a veteran that isn't in a stable living environment currently. And I say currently because, right, isn't there all this other support that we have for our veterans? So while I can't find them housing, I want to be able to refer them to another organization that can. And when they can come back and they have proven to me that their life is in a different place at the time, we can reapply to the program. And I think that's where it comes to all the veteran organizations working together. Um, we do a background check. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the moments when you're not most proud of yourself over the years or time frame that you've been back from um, either back from combat or out of the military. And tell me about those times because I'm a human. I have a lot of times I'm not proud of myself too. Um, but if I know those things, that helps us pair. It also helps us, though, as an organiza organization, better prepare for darker moments that that veteran may still experience even with a service dog. That's great feedback. Do you guys, does the organization organization happen to work with um, like specific placement of veterans so they can have access to a dog? For example, like the tiny homes that are being provided and built for uh, the Veterans Community Project, things like that. Do you guys specifically pair with them so that they can get housing, so they can get the dogs, so, you know, things like that? ironic that you say that specific organization because we're very close with them. Okay. Um, while their all of their tiny homes are not built yet, it's a relationship that we started when we found that they were coming to St. Louis. And um, we've actually had conversations about what if, what if we come by and some of the veterans who are staying in their tiny homes temporarily, because that's not um, a place that they will live forever, um, what if we bring a dog by and what if the veterans start to help us in the training process? And who knows, that veteran, um, after their time with the Tiny Home Project, when they have found their new forever home, maybe a forever service dog comes with that. So, um, yeah, there are a few organizations that we've been introduced to over the last year, year and a half that we've really en enjoyed growing with, um, and there's many more we'd like to meet. So according to the National Alliance on Mental Health, dogs force us to become more social. Can you talk about any uh, experience that the, that the veterans have communicated back to you on how their mental health has improved with the dogs? Absolutely. We have, I have one veteran in mind with this question that is currently on a Disney cruise right now. Because his wife messaged me on Facebook and was explaining that since having their dog, Holly, his, the veteran Simon has just blossomed. And he has just been so much more open to talking to people just at a restaurant or out and about, you know, doing their weekly errands. And it's just so rewarding to hear that, you know, they got to go take a Disney cruise vacation as a family because they now have Holly. They never would have done that before because he didn't have that kind of confidence and he didn't have that sense of independence that he now has with her. One thing that we've heard too quite a bit from our veterans is the reason that it becomes easier for them to leave home is because the focus isn't on them, which can be a good and a bad thing, which is why awareness of how to react to a service dog in public is something that we do um, educate the community on. But, you know, it's always about the dog, and it, it doesn't feel for um, veterans, in their words, that people are staring at me or the focus is on me. And um, it becomes, oh my gosh, I love your dog. Can I pet your dog? And the answer is no, the dog is working. It has a vest on. But um, it allows them to feel almost as in their, if they're in the shadow of their dog. But that's a huge positive when you're really afraid to go outside or, or be seen in public. And we come across this all the time. The trainers do when we take the dogs out in public. People want to start conversations with you. So there's like the built-in like, oh, your dog's really cute. Oh, thank you. What What's her name? What kind of dog is it? So you're already just starting a conversation with somebody and you already kind of, you can you know that they're friendly. 
you kind of know because they're a dog person. So <laughs> you, you kind of already have one thing in common from the start. That's great feedback. No, I'm just thinking as kind of a, a layperson, a, a non-veteran, and, and no one who's ever had a service dog, is there any kind of maybe a couple general rules for a general public person on how to uh, maybe approach somebody with a service dog or communicate with somebody with a service dog? I would say if they're busy doing something, just don't approach them at the moment. If you do find a time when they are sitting um, and the dog is kind of not doing anything and you do want to say something, um, just know that they might say no to anything and just you have to be okay with that. Um, But also, you don't want to talk to the dog. You also don't want to really make eye contact with the dog because that's really going to distract them as well. Um, Obviously, you can look at the dog, and if the person says it's okay, the person handling the dog says it's okay, then hold your hand out for them to sniff and pet them under the chin. That would be my best advice for how to. So I just want to add that it is so important to remember that because you're not the only one that is stopping and asking that veteran questions about their dog or anybody that has a service dog. And if that person let that dog say hi to every single person, it was going to undo all of their training and it's going to start to learn that they can say hi to anybody that walks by. And that is very undesirable as a service dog. They have to ignore a lot of distractions. So Imagine a service dog that thought it was okay to say hi to a waiter in a restaurant and trip them with a tray full of food. You know, they have to be able to ignore all of those kinds of distractions just just to remain safe in public. I always compare it to, like, if you're working on your laptop and someone just comes up and starts making eye contact with you or starts looking at you funny and starts trying to talk to you, that's going to distract you from your job. But if you're taking a lunch break or something and someone comes up to talk to you or... If you approach someone, so if the a veteran, you, a veteran might see someone looking at their dog and be like, all right, it's okay. That's usually the best advice is, you know, let the person say that it's okay to you. That would be the best. But yeah, if you're working and someone just comes up, starts talking to you and starts trying to pet you, you're going to be a little distracted from your job. I think another little PSA on that is that <clears throat> the service dog goes everywhere with the veteran and... Put yourself in the veteran's shoes. You simply just want to go run an errand. You just want to run into Walgreens and pick something up. And how many times if they've already been out other places, has that veteran been stopped and asked about their service dog? Or somebody comes up, oh my gosh, I love your dog. And while we all love dogs and, it, you know, again, this is a learning experience, but just keep that in mind. Think about the times that you just want to run in somewhere really, really quick, grab an item and go. And maybe it's the day you didn't wash your hair and you're still in your jammies and you're that person. That's our veterans sometimes. And they just want to be able to navigate life because they can now. And sometimes us dog lovers interfere with that a little bit. Yeah, I could definitely I could definitely see where the interference would come with uh, little kids or people that love dogs and things of that nature. So tell us real quick, start to finish, how long does it take to train one of these dogs? About 18 months. We've had dogs graduate earlier, um, but about 18 months is the standard. And it does depend, too, because the pairing process is not exact. It is not the next veteran that chronologically applied gets the next dog to graduate. So we do have some dogs in our program that have been there for three months that already have a veteran paired with them. Um, But we also have dogs that graduate, you know, maybe in April and don't have a paired veteran yet. Um, So for those dogs, you know, they're probably just waiting for their right veteran and that's okay. If they need an extra month to find their right person, that's totally fine. And how many veterans are we helping every year? Currently, we are helping 16 veterans in the United States, and um, so we've placed 17 dogs, and Josie had passed, um, which is why we have started a capital campaign. When we look into 2023, we really only have the room and space to be able to place about five to six dogs next year, 
Um, we are in Dogtown, and it's in the city. We have no room to grow up or out, which is now requiring us to find a new location and build a training center so we can accommodate um, more rescue dogs, more staff, and the availability to serve more veterans. So you would need like some kennel space, some training space, office space. How much space do you need? Yeah, I think we're thinking um, 12,000 square feet, um, training space, a little bit of office space, and a lot of home-like features, bedroom, bathroom, kitchen. So when we envision this perfect project, um, it's going to be dynamic, that's for sure. We want to make sure that when a veteran's in for the pairing process or when we're training dogs or educating the public, that it looks and it mimics what it would like be like to be a veteran in their own home, but also have um, a big open area for training. And then, um, as we had mentioned earlier, dog condos or bunkers, as we call them. I love that. <laughs> and that is a little skewed as well. I think um, five to seven dogs has been the past few years. But before that, when the organization was founded, it was – train a dog, find a veteran, train a dog, find a veteran for a few years. And then our director of training was brought on. And um, he was brought on as a consultant trainer for a hot minute. And then they loved him so much that they were like, hey, why don't you build this program from the ground up? And he's like, okay, absolutely. And so since then, it's come from, you know, two dogs at the training center to three to four to five so when I started, there were five dogs, and now we are at maximum capacity with 10 dogs in training. So we are actually limited to only place about five dogs a year with veterans right now, which is why we need a new building. Yeah, while we were, for, you, good point, while we were founded in 2014, it wasn't until th- 2018 that we had a training center. So prior to that, it was Andy and Marilyn who live in California had a trainer that they had contracted with in Arizona. And while a dog was being trained, they would find a veteran. So it was a very slow growth until 2018 when we had a physical location. And um, now that physical location we've maxed out. But that physical location serves the whole United States. So with the limited resources that veterans find themselves, you know, being able to access, how does someone find you guys? Right now, um, word of mouth has been our biggest avenue. Those that have service dogs through Dogs for Our Brave have been referring other veterans that they know to the organization. Um, Our website is dfob.org, and on there, there's a veteran introduction form, and they can start the process that way. We've been hesitant, and I know this sounds crazy, but hesitant to over-market ourselves Um, We never want to put a veteran in a position where we're telling them it's going to be five years before they receive a service dog. We'd rather just handle a few approved veterans at a time, knowing how many dogs we're going to have graduate that year. So we've been able to do this balancing act for, well, really since probably late 2018 and all the way through this upcoming year. So it's... I think that we're growing at a perfect rate. We're growing at a rate that we can handle and honor and respect um, our veterans and our dogs without saying, oh, come on, enjoying our, our long, long, long wait list. And while I know you need that dog now, you probably needed the dog a year ago or longer, you can just hang out and wait for one. You know, we think it's long enough while they're waiting. We just don't want to give anyone any false hope or unrealistic expectations. Sounds like, you know, that uh, the resources are limited. It sounds like the space is limited. Is the people also limited? The volunteers also limited? If so, how can the general public or people that have a passion for something like this join the team or volunteer or anything in that nature? Well, with 10 dogs living in one building, I'm sure all the dog lovers can imagine how dirty that building can get very quickly, <laughs> especially with very young pups that come in and out. Um, so we always, always, always need volunteers to come in and help us keep our building clean and health and healthy and safe for our dogs. Um, and so 
that is always an option, but we are also in the process of building an ambassador program that other types of volunteers can get involved in. So if cleaning's not your thing, but you still want to be involved and you still want to volunteer and you're, you know, invested in the community, then that might be another option for you is to apply for that. Um, also, you can follow us on social media if you're just someone who likes to look at cute pictures of dogs. Uh, Bridget, what are the different handles for things? It's all, they're all dogs for our brave. At dogs for at our dogs brave. dogs for our brave. There you go. So at, pound sign, all that yep. kind of stuff. Dogs for our brave. Yep. Okay, I love that. So before we wrap up, guys, I want to give you guys the opportunity to tell us anything else that you, that the public or that our veterans should know about when it comes to Dogs for Our Brave or anything else that you want to mention before we sign off. I will say that if you donate to Dogs for Our Brave, if you feel the need or want to donate to Dogs for Our Brave, the money 100% goes back into pairing a dog with a veteran. We will fly them in to meet with the dogs. Uh, there's, you know, the office costs of paper and things like that, but most of it is going to food, toys, treats, <laughs> all for the dogs. And I do want to say that there are several other service dog organizations that are out there that do amazing work with veterans specifically as well. Um our niche is that we really want to treat the veterans like the VIP that we believe they are, which is why we bring them in, cover all those costs, cover the cost of the dog for the life of the dog, and continue to invest in them. So when their service dog passes away or retires, we do get them another one if they're ready for that. And I just want to let everybody know that we are always open to having people come in and tour the training center. So when we say that everything goes towards the mission, I think it's really important that you come in and see the operation, especially now since we have kicked off our capital campaign. It'd be really cool to say, oh, I remember when, (laughs) when you could only have 10 dogs in your program at a time, when you could only serve five to six veterans every year, because we're going to look back five years from now and be like, whoa, we have really, really made an impact Um, in the veteran community and the heroes who have given us all of our freedoms that we take advantage of every day. And April, how can they get a hold of you by phone? Can they get a hold of you by phone? Yeah, absolutely. Our direct phone number to the training center is 314-312-6987. And any specific admin email address they can email if they have questions or they want to be a part of this or anything like that? Yeah, I would just start with myself. It's april at dogsforourbrave.com, all spelled out. Um, or you can go to the website, dfob.org, and um, email in or contact us. It goes straight to my email as well. Well, we're so glad that uh, we had you guys in the studio today to, to uh, talk about Dogs for Our Brave and um, Again, uh, casting a vision for the future. I'm glad you did that. You are going to look back in a few years and say, look where we've come from and where we're going, and uh, I love that. Um, Anything else, guys, before we sign off? I'd just say thank you for having us. (laughs) Can't wait to talk to you next year about all the progress we've made on our capital campaign. Absolutely. Well, we're going to go ahead and sign off from the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate.